Amen. Thank you. Well, like Matt said, my name is Ian, and I am so overjoyed to get to be with you guys today. Now, as Matt kind of shared, you know, I am, I'm new here. I've been hanging around for the past few months, and it has been a joy and an encouragement to be with you guys. Um, so like Matt just said, my wife and I are uh, missionaries in a Muslim country in South Asia. And so we were called uh, by the Lord to come back here for a few months to help my mom um, kind of rehab from um, a fall she had. And so we've been doing that. And it's been an untimely uh, visit, but we feel like the Lord has really blessed us. And so getting to be with you guys, um, like I said, we are part of Calvary Wellspring. I was an elder pastor there. Um, and getting to be with you guys has just felt like being home. And so thank you for your welcoming spirit here at the church. Um, and let me just say one thing while I have the microphone before we get into the text. You guys are blessed here to have such great leaders. Matt and, and Scott have been just doing a great job. Um, they're such great preachers of the word, such humble, godly men. Um, and I just want to say to them, wherever they are, I think they're not in here, but they're doing a great job. And remind them of that um, at the end of today. So I am so thankful to get to to share with you guys today, and it's a special honor for me because, as Matt said, this is my hometown, uh, La Junta. I went to La Junta High School, La Junta Middle School, um, but it's a really special occasion for me because this is one of the first churches I've ever been in in La Junta because before I was not a follower of Jesus when I was in high school, um, and even though I, you know, God had other plans for my life, I would have never, ever believed it, that he would call me from this little small town in Colorado to go to the very far ends of the earth. It might shock you what God might do with your life if you're completely surrendered to him. And now the country where we are currently living in um, is absolutely nothing like this small town, Colorado. Um, in fact, we say it's the exact opposite, one by population. Uh, the country we live in has 180 million people. The whole country is half the size of Colorado, so just think about just the plains of Colorado, but it has 30 times the population, 180 million people. And we live in the most densely populated part of it in a megacity right in the middle of the country. It, it's vastly different. And also by demographic, the country that we live in is a majority Muslim country. The official stats are that uh, it's 90% Muslim, 8% Hindu, and 2% Buddhist. And that leaves about 0.01% uh, for evangelical Christianity. It's hard to fathom what a different kind of place it is. But I have, God has called me home, in a sense, for a time, and I thank him. And so just like Paul, when he returned home to his home church of Antioch, it says in the, Bi in the Bible, it's, Upon arriving at Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the nations. And so today, I want to share about our work in South Asia. But I also, more than that, want to speak about the high calling that we all have to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations. And I want to invite you personally and you as a church into this. Now, rather than just throwing up poverty pictures or guilt-inducing statistics that might motivate you towards mission for a while, I, I would rather unpack for you 
what is the real motivation and the real definition of missions that we see in the Bible in the example of the life of Paul? But before that, actually, let's read the text where we'll go, and then I will pray. Romans 1, 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there. It reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was, a dis- who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for um, this text. We thank you so much for um, what it says you've done for us on our behalf. Lord, I pray today that you would deepen our affections for you. Would you call us into a deeper understanding of your grace, Lord, and, and by your grace, Lord, would you send us out. Lord, be with me now as I speak your words to your people, Lord, for your glory here and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Now, the section that you just heard read was, of course, the um, opening section of the book of Romans, one of my favorite books. Now, Romans isn't necessarily a book that you immediately think of when you think of missions. Perhaps you think of getting lost in some heavy theology or or unpacking one of Paul's long, run-on sentences. Maybe that's what you think of. And so, maybe it would fit better to think that Maybe a theologian's favorite book might be Romans, but missions, maybe they've got something else. But for us, this is why we named uh, our son Roman, after this book. Because in this book, we find the fullest declaration of uh, an unpacking of the gospel throughout the first eight chapters. Rather than being just a simple Paul's, this is his exposition of the gospel, a theological treatise of the good news, rather than that, missions or apostleship is a main focus of the, in, the entire book. One commentator had noted that in all the letters of Paul, uh, an introduction functions as a thematic introduction into the main purpose of the letter. And here in this introduction of the letter, um, he lays out two overarching themes. One, the gospel, and two, the call to take that gospel to all nations. Uh, additionally, Romans is, uh, among other things, a support letter to the church in Rome. You ever received one of those from a missionary? Paul is using this letter to ask the church in Rome to send him on to the farthest ends of the earth, to, to Spain. We see this at the end of the, of the book. And after 15 chapters of thick, wonderful gospel theology, he returns to the theme of missions and he says to them, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. And then later he says, I go to Spain by way of you meaning by your help. Well, if this is a, a, about missions, and if this is a support letter, why then, why all that laboring for 14 or 15 chapters over the intricacies and excellencies of the gospel uh, and of our election? Well, that's because in the mind of Paul, you cannot separate the two. You see, it's the weighty and beautiful first eight chapters, rather the whole first 14, that call Paul to make an ask that this church might send him on to the farthest ends of the earth. And that they might agree to joyfully send him on towards Spain. 
the beauty and the serious consequences of the gospel for all nations, including Rome, is the reason that Paul longed to go beyond them. Why he wanted to go to Spain and why the church would send him on gladly. And likewise, the major content of this book, the gospel, is the reason why my family and many others I know, might leave the lush paradise of the Arkansas Valley, that's, that's a joke, um, and move to a place like a megacity in South Asia. See, the grace of Jesus is the source, the means, and the end of mission. And that is the connection that I want to make for us today. As we mentioned, in the first of the many, of the many theologically rich run-on sentences that Paul will write in this book, he, in this first one, introduces the overall theme. He names explicitly two concepts. Look with me at verse 5. This is the the verse that I want to hone in on today. He says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. You see those concepts there together? Grace and apostleship. From Jesus, we have received grace, and that is amazing, and that is true. And we know this, right? You walk into our house, we might have a decoration with the word grace on it. You go to family Christian stores, there's thousands of decorations with the word grace. However, that second word, apostleship, we don't hang that up in our house very often, right? But right there together with grace, we also see apostleship. And those are the two things that I want to connect for us today. First, grace. Now, Paul starts by introducing himself in verse 1 as saying that he is a a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, if this sounds like an impressive resume, let's remember who we are dealing with here. By his own self-admission, Paul would later in another place say that he is the chief of sinners, Paul knows that everything he is now or everything he might be is because of grace alone. Grace meaning that kindness and undeserved favor from Jesus. Now, as you remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He oversaw the execution of Stephen, the first martyr. And as it says in Acts 8, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then later, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And when I think about my life before Jesus, it was much like Paul's. See, I was an atheist here in La Junta. I was a a God-hating atheist. At La Junta High School, I used to love to rip Christians' arguments to shreds. In biology class, we'd debate, and I would just love to reduce people to tears. And in college, I was a biology major, and so I became even more solidified in my views on this point. So much so that at one time, there was an evangelist who came to the campus, and he was preaching the gospel to a large crowd of maybe 60 people who were sitting down listening to him. And me, in front of the whole crowd, stood up and said, what an idiot, how can you believe this? This was who I was. But like Paul, God began to, by grace, rescue me and put people in my life that would share the gospel with me and tell about who Jesus truly is. And like Paul, I had a Damascus Road experience when I opened the Bible and I saw Jesus in the book of Matthew, and the scales fell from my eyes. Praise the Lord. And you know the story for Paul, how by absolute undeserved kindness and grace of the Lord, he he revealed himself to Paul as he was on the road to Damascus, on the road to persecute and murder Christians. Jesus reveals himself. And for a time, Paul was 
blind, and nobody would help him. Uh, Yet God called a man named Ananias to go and place his hands upon him. Now, at first, Ananias was skeptical, saying, this is a murderer and a persecutor. I'm not going anywhere near him. But God said to him very uh, specifically, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the nations and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias went, and then Paul, after receiving his sight, it says, this verse, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. You see that? He immediately, from persecutor, went into proclaimer. He immediately went into preaching. He did not wait for further instruction or schooling. See, the prerequisite and the qualification for his ministry and his preaching here was that he had experienced grace, and he had experienced grace. As seen in the life of Paul, those that have had the most radical experience with grace are often the ones that are the loudest when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. Oh, how much I want this for my life, and oh, how much I want this for all of us here. Now, after experiencing the grace of the Lord, uh, Paul now would represent himself, first off, as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, as I said before, this is a word that means slave. He was bound to serve Jesus. Not out of a sense of repayment, but because he had received so much from Jesus that he was now eternally bound to him and his cause in the world. After receiving radical grace, the once persecutor became a proclaimer, radically saved and sent. Now, you might think of Paul as just kind of a special case. Well, he's the Apostle Paul, right? But really, when you look at his life, his example is an archetype for all of mankind, See, because though he was a persecutor of Jesus and a murderer, by our sin, all the world is in just as much as need of forgiveness and grace as he was. Everybody, me, everyone in this room without Jesus is in the same line with Paul. You see, all the world is cut off from the blessings of God because of their sin. The whole world cut off from a holy and a righteous God who is just and right to punish our sin. And left to ourselves, we are now, it says in the scriptures, by very nature, objects of wrath. And if things were just to be just and right, we would have stayed that way forever and ever and ever. And this is why Paul, in his book of Romans, immediately gets into the dramatic um, situation that the whole world is in. Saying in a verse that I'm sure you've read before, but is not pretty to read. Romans 1, 18 through 23. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so God gave them over to a depraved mind. And this says that all of mankind's knowledge about God is enough to condemn him, but not enough to save him. The whole world is in need of grace, in need of saving, in need of a removal of the punishment from their own sin. Now, when I read this verse, I can't help but think about the part of the world where we live currently, South Asia. 
where every day millions exchange the glory of God for literally symbols resembling men and birds and animals and creeping things. Now imagine this scene with me from the Kaligat Temple in the heart of Calcutta, India. This is a temple to the god of Kali. This is one of the few in the city of Calcutta who every day have animal sacrifice. Now imagine this. Long lines of people standing in heavy rain just for a chance to get into the temple, to stand before a wooden idol and say a prayer of blessing on their life. Or imagine this, what I witnessed when I was there, a small girl, maybe five years old, leading in her family's goat by leash into the priest to be sacrificed. Now around the goat uh, and, and the priest, large crowds of rain-soaked devotees would gather around just hoping to, to see the act of sacrifice. And then loudly, as the tension built, the, the priest began to chant. He raises his knife, and with a shriek, he dr- the knife drops, blood splatters everywhere. The crowd and the little girl's family absolutely cheer for joy. The crowds push forward, just hoping to get some of the blood from the goat, that they might smear it on their body or on their foreheads, just to absorb some of the blessing of that sacrifice. And then the little girl collects the severed head of the goat and walks off. And then the priest yells, next! And this goes on all day, every day. Or imagine this scene, closer to home for us. Uh, A man hears the loud call to prayer, and he gets his mat, and he begins to walk to the mosque. Uh, It's a long walk, but he knows that the further the walk to the mosque, the more favor he's going to get from Allah. And as he walks, he tries to say in his heart quietly, Allah, 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 knowing that if he does that repeatedly, he might get a little bit more favor from Allah. And so he gets to the mosque, and he begins ritual washing knowing that Allah would not accept his prayer if he didn't. And then inside the mosque, he recites memorized prayers in a language that he does not understand, knowing, um, being very careful to do the right movements and the right gestures to make his prayer acceptable to Allah. And as he prays, he bows uh, and touches his forehead to the ground to show his reverence to Allah, but he does it so hard, either out of fear or misplaced devotion, that often blood or bruising is seen on his forehead. And then imagine that he does this five times a day, being sure never to miss in order to gain, uh, to miss an opportunity to gain favor with, with God. Being sure to perform his prayers perfectly and with vigor, so much so that throughout his life a permanent bruise would develop on his forehead, visible to everyone. And what is more, imagine doing this five times a day, all the while knowing that even if you never missed a day, and even if you were to fulfill all the other requirements of your religion, that nobody can be sure, not even their prophet, that they might be in heaven. The world is lost. The world is confused, and it is cut off from God. And there are billions of people who live out these two realities every day. Now imagine with me the real place of where we live, a mega city in South Asia. This is a city a little bit bigger than Lahanta, with 18 million people in the city. It's only about 10 miles by 10 miles with 18 million people gathered gathered in there. One of the most densely populated cities in the world. And as I said before, the believing population, 0.01%. Which means that out of 10,000 people, one might be a follower of Jesus. It's a city that is so full of people and, and lostness. Often as I'm walking around just looking at the crowds, I'm thinking to myself, how many people here realistically have ever rightly heard the name of Jesus? 
they might have heard the name of Jesus. And if I were to ask them, have you heard about Jesus? They might say, oh yeah, you mean the Muslim prophet who, who once took some mud and blew into it and made a bird? That Jesus? Ever rightly heard the word of Jesus by statistics in a crowd, it's often a zero. Now, what would Jesus do if he saw such a city? All right, well, we know what he would do, and Romans tells us what, would, what Jesus did and would do. He would provide grace and forgiveness for it by means of his own sacrifice. Uh, I like to imagine Jesus climbing a tall tower, or I guess taking an elevator to the top, and, and like he did when he looked at Jerusalem, saying, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her, her young under her wings, and you were not willing. And then weeping, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And now we, we would weep too like Jesus if we know the full travesty that nearly all of the people in that city, 18 million of them, know the first part of Romans in their very own souls, but do not know the power of God to save as revealed in the gospel. The gospel that Paul starts his whole book with, saying the gospel of God in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. They don't know what God had promised from a long time ago, that he had waited patiently for the time that he might send his own son, not just a prophet, his own son to come down and die by the hands of sinful man and then to be, de to be declared as the Savior of the world by rising again from the dead. They don't know that even though it says in Romans 3 that all have turned aside, together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one, that he would provide enough grace to cover them all. And they don't know what it would also say in Romans 3, that he would be the propitiation for our sins by his own blood, that he would take our place, take the wrath in himself, dying in our place even while we were still sinners. They don't know that the curse that was against us is now lifted and as it says in the crescendo of the book of Romans, Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus ever again. And then at the end of that chapter, that no one, no thing could ever separate us from the love of God. They don't know it. But we do. We do know this. If you are in Christ and you are a Christian, you know these wonderful truths. And you know that you have received grace. But church, this is a grace that's in a direction. According to this example in Romans, we have also received another thing, apostleship. You see, he would graciously lay down his life for us. He would die the death that we deserved, and then he would be powerfully resurrected, showing that his grace can make the dead alive. It, it can make the sinner saved. It can make the lost found, and it can make those of us who are utterly unworthy of grace recipients of it. And by that grace, he can transform persecutors into apostles, rulers into servants, fishermen into fishers of men, alcoholics into pastors, foolish college students into missionaries. We have received grace, and with that, apostleship. Now, I believe when Paul says that word apostleship, he has a specific thing in mind, which I will unpack in a bit. But for now, it suffices to say that that word apostle or apostleship means in its most basic sense to be a message bearer. An emissary for another. One that comes on the behalf of another to relay a message. So we receive the gospel of grace, but then we immediately become ambassadors of that gospel. And as they are put together side by side, Paul is making the point that for him, 
and for us, we can't have one without the other. If you are a Christian and you have received grace and forgiveness from Jesus, you are, in a generic sense, an apostle, a message bearer. See, the grace that you've experienced through the gospel promised beforehand about the resurrected Son was not entirely for you. It was in a direction. It was for others, for those in your family that don't yet know him, for your classmates, for your coworkers, for your neighbors. Now, it would be crazy to imagine a grace that is different than this. It would be crazy, right? Like that everyone else in the whole world might be in such a debt to God by our sin, and then by grace, the debt is just fully paid by our Lord himself, and then we're just thankful, and we come to church on Sunday, and that's pretty much about it, and we just kind of keep the message of salvation to ourselves. That would seem strange, right? Now, therefore, in reality, those Christians that we often deem strange, you know, the crazy ones, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that are always getting in conversations about Jesus, the ones we might call radical, those are not the strange ones. Rather, the ones that know the kindness, love, and forgiveness offered by Jesus, and then just think it not so important enough to tell another person, that's strange. Those are the radicals, the radically selfish. Now, perhaps this scenario of a Christian that is not doing this is not, perhaps not even possible. Charles Spurgeon, who has often been called my historical doppelganger, um, puts it strikingly this way. A quote that I have shared many times that bears repeating again. He said, If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquence. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. That man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. If thou knowest Christ, thou art as one that hath found honey, thou wilt call others to taste of it. Be wise in your generation and speak of him in fitting ways and at fitting times. And so in every place, proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. See, Paul knew this in his own life and calling, but he also knew that, that to live our life for the purposes of God and his glory is a weight that lays upon every Christian because of the very nature of the gospel. Uh, one commentator said that, according to Paul, why do ordinary Christians preach the gospel? And Paul would say, because they have, they have been swept up into the triumphant advance of God's saving word. It is as if Paul's congregations have fallen into the river of God's flooding advance. The idea of not being carried downstream is unthinkable. And this is something that is for everybody, regardless of background, regardless of age. Just a few months ago, I was at what felt like the farthest reaches of the earth, in a village about 10 hours outside of our city. And it felt like God had said, go to the ends of the earth, and it felt like we had found it. We were at the ends of the earth, and there at the ends of the earth, I found myself in a small, secluded, partly constructed uh, concrete building with about 20 Muslim background believers. 
it was a very interesting group. Uh, one of the guys had a huge wizard kind of beard. Um, he carried a staff with a dragon head carved into it, right? This is not something you often get in your meetings. Um, many of them were extremely poor, illiterate farmers. Um, another one had a, a 10 to 20 pound goiter on his neck that was just painful and burdensome. He was there at the meeting. There was a trans person who was at the meeting who had recently believed, but somehow had found acceptance in this small community of believers at the ends of the earth. And there was this very short man, about this high, who throughout the day had been following us around and kind of yelling at us and demanding that we give him money. And then as we got to talk to him, we found out that he was having seizures, almost hourly having seizures. And even as we were talking to him, he began to have a seizure. And so we prayed for him. And then as he, as he woke up, we, we shared the gospel with him. And we shared that he could be healed from these seizures. But then more important than that is that he needs to be healed or needs to be forgiven from his sin before God. And right there and then he received, he prayed to be healed of those seizures and also to receive Jesus as his Savior. And this guy, five minutes, ago, five minutes before was having seizures and yelling at us, was in our meeting. Now, if you were in this group, with this eclectic, to say the least, group, what would you say to these believers? Well, perhaps you might want to say, well, you guys, you guys got it kind of rough. Some of you can't read. You're poor. You got health problems. There's really not much you guys can do. Maybe just get together every once in a while and just kind of encourage each other. Maybe read the Bible or something. Or, or maybe you'd say, you know, you guys really aren't much. We need to bring some experts in here to really show you how it's done. Maybe that's what we might be tempted to say, but absolutely not. What I told them is what I would tell every Christian, regardless of where I'm at in the world. Like Charles Spurgeon said, if thou knowest Christ, thou art one that hath found honey, thou wilt call others to taste of it. Now, I didn't say it in those words, but I said it essentially, if you have been graciously and miraculously saved, God has given you a high calling and a precious privilege to make him known in your village and to the very ends of the earth. That man with that painful goiter, he told me right after this meeting, I'm going straight to the mosque, and I'm going to proclaim the gospel. Oh, that there would be more like him. The grace of God, the gospel of Jesus, is a river rushing outward. Will it stop with you? Now, every graciously saved Christian is compelled to share this news with others in his, in his or her sphere of influence, right? The people that they might just find around them. It's not meant to just stay with us, but to go through us to those who we might find around. But it's not even meant to stop there. It's not meant to stay in our locale, just right around us. It's not meant to just go to your neighbor or to your friend, but rather something bigger, perhaps, is at stake. As Paul says um, in our text, the long foretold grace of God is a grace in a direction. It's a direction towards all nations, all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul says that his gospel um, was promised beforehand through the prophets. That's what he said in our text. Well, let's look at one of the first places that this gospel is promised. God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, if you're following along. This is what he says to Abram. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you see that? 
See, Abram was a man who lived in modern-day Iraq, and at the time, he was worshiping the moon god, Nana. But God graciously, apart from anything that he did, chose him and blessed him. But that blessing wasn't just for him, and it wasn't just for his family or those right around him. No, it went far beyond, all the way into all the families of the earth. Even from the very beginning, the gospel has always ever been about getting out to all nations. All the way in the Old Testament, all of those people who experienced grace, the right heart would have been to say, like the psalmist in Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, but then saying that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And this is why in our text, in verse 5, Paul says that we have Uh, from Jesus received grace, and with that apostleship, and that apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on, explaining the specific work and motivation of apostleship, or as we might call it today, missions, or frontier missions. So I do believe when Paul says the word apostleship, that, or that he was called to be an apostle, that he has a specific type of work and calling in mind. You know, this calling was, of course, to evangelism, as he says, that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And it's, of course, global size, because he said it was supposed to be among all nations. But it's even more specific than that. Now, to see what Paul's specific work and call was, turn with me in Romans to the very end, chapter 15. Look at verse 20. Paul says clearly what his call was. He says... And thus, in verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul's specific calling is to go to places where Jesus is not known. In modern missionary terms, to go to the unreached areas or peoples of the world. But it's not just to go there and to stay there, and to do ministry there. Because he says in a few verses, actually before that, in verse 19, by powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, what? Fulfilled the gospel? The ministry of the gospel? Who, who talks like that? Fulfilled the ministry from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum? Now that, in modern-day terms, is from Jerusalem all the way to modern-day Croatia, or right up all the way to Italy. And Paul says that he has to go even further than Italy because it says in verse 23, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. What in the world is he talking about? Does it mean that Paul had evangelized every person from Jerusalem all the way to Rome? Or that they had all, everyone had become Christian? Or does it mean... Um, that by, every, by that time, everybody had at least had a chance to hear the gospel. No. It means that Paul saw his job as an apostle missionary to be the tip of the spear, so to say, in the advance of God's gospel to the ends of the earth. To go to these unreached regions or peoples, share the gospel and make disciples, establish a church, and not stay there and pastor that church, but rather appoint others to pastor that church. And commit that church and the leaders and the, and the members to do the local work of evangelizing the rest of that area. And then for Paul to leave and go onward to where Jesus Christ is not available. 
And so in that large area, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, not everybody were believers in Jesus, but there were some that were, and there was a church there that was able to represent Jesus and do the normal work of ministry and share the gospel with the rest. See, for the apostle, or for missionaries today, the chief reason for going is not just to go to a faraway place and preach Jesus, but it is a matter of access to the gospel. You see, those two examples that I gave about that Hindu family with their goats or the Muslim man with his mat and his bruised forehead, it's not that those are somehow more shocking or more sinful than your happy, well-fed neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. They're not. Nor does it mean that those two need Jesus more than your neighbor. They don't. The point is that for that Hindu family and that Muslim man, they likely do not even have access at all to the gospel. They don't have an opportunity to hear at all. Like if they woke up, you know, we, we pray for dreams often. They, they woke up, they had a dream to go find out about Jesus, that they wouldn't even know where to turn. And they wouldn't have any realistic chance to ever hear the gospel. There's no church to tell them. There's no trunk or treats. There's no VBSs. There's no mission-focused cookouts. Now, it's a travesty that there are so many people in the world that have not yet heard the gospel, but in today's day and age, it's a scandal that there are still so many that don't even have access at all to the gospel. So many people groups that are unreached, meaning they have less than 2% of a gospel presence among them, or worse, so many people groups that are unengaged, unreached, where there's no missionaries or no work or no churches at all. In the world today, there are 6,825 unreached people groups. And worse than that, there are 3,000 unengaged, unreached people groups who do not have any access at all. You see, Paul's calling was not just to cross cultural evangelism, to go someplace, learn a language, and preach Jesus, but to go among the unreached and plant churches there that are able to do the normal work of ministry and making Jesus known in their area, the task of every Christian to testify to his grace. Now, this is the specific work of an apostle. And this is the specific work that my wife and I are called to, to take the gospel to the unreached at the ends of the earth. The people group that we serve is the largest unreached people group in the world. 150 million people with little to no access to the gospel at all. Now, when we first went there, actually 10 years ago, uh, we had a great ambition, right? And I knew that I needed to set a God-sized goal for my ministry. And so we decided to set a goal, and a lifetime goal, that at the end of our life, we would see 500 disciples made. Now, that would be amazing, right? But when we began to understand the enormity of the task, a city of 18 million people, uh, or a country of 180 million people, uh, people, I realized that is far too little a goal. What might be better is instead of 500 disciples, 500 churches, churches that are trained and equipped to be able to do the work of ministry in their locale. But in the grand scheme, this is still too little a goal. In addition to our work in the city of 18 million people, um, a, a team that has been sent from the Calvary family, uh, our family plus five others, we're in charge of a large swath of the country. Um, and it has another 16 million people that live there. And in this area alone, just in the one-sixth of the country, there are 8,000 villages. And on average, a village has anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people per village. 
Now, if we, like Paul, want to see a sustainable gospel witness there, we want to see at least one church in that village of 15,000 people. Right now, as far as the people we lead and we oversee, we have seven church planning partners, seven church planning national pastors. And among them, there are seven, or there are nine new immature churches that are just kind of growing and figuring it out. And among them are five discipleship groups that we hope in the next year or so to turn into churches. There is so much work to do. Would you join with us and pray with us as we labor onward towards 500 uh, uh, church planting producing churches on the way towards 8,000? Now, whether or not we get there, that is in God's hands. But we are not motivated by numbers alone, but by something far greater, and that is God's glory. Now we see this in our text. Paul says that we have this apostleship, look with me again at verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of his name among all the nations. Now that is the motivation for missions. Apostleship is not primarily for the sake of the salvation of individuals, even though that happens, and praise the Lord. But it is primarily that God's name might be praised all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, John Piper has rightly said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. See, missions is not for world reform. It's not to win the culture war. It's not to make Christian the pagan places. It's not to build a following or ministry for ourselves. But it's, and it's not even firstly that people might be saved. But for Paul, the apostle, and for missionaries today, and indeed for every Christian, the ultimate motivation is that God might be praised among every nation. Now we go, not primarily that South Asians, might, South Asians might be saved or served, but because God alone is worthy of their devotion, not the cold ideology of Allah or the wooden statues of Kali. And we know that being able to graciously worship Jesus, that is the sweetest, most beautiful thing in the whole world. Oh, that God's glory might, might cover the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. Oh, that we might be a part of that great pic picture in the end times, Revelation 7-9, where it says this, a, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that crying out, grace, grace, because somebody else who had experienced that grace took the message to them, across the street to their neighbor, um, across the town to that place where nobody goes, or to the people that nobody talks to, or even across the world to the ends of the earth. Uh, church, isn't this what we long for, this, this picture here? Uh, grace, that we would say that God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us, but then apostleship, that his way may be known on the earth. His salvation among all nations. Won't you go for the sake of his name? Church, I don't, we're, we're just a, a short 20-hour plane ride away from places with little to no gospel presence. What's preventing us from going? What's preventing you from going? And that, now, to be sure, not all people are called to this kind of apostleship or to frontier missions. But to be sure, some are. Are you? Is there anyone here that's called to this? 
let me pause and give a quick commercial. One of the things that I do for the Calvary family, um, besides being sent as a missionary, is I lead a missionary training cohort where it's a year or two long program where if you're interested in missions or you might even think, I'm not sure if I'm interested in missions, but maybe come with us and spend a year or two with us thinking about missions, hopefully with the goal that at the end of a year or two, you might be sent overseas from the Calvary family. If you're interested in that, come speak to me or email missions at thecalvary.org or talk to one of your leaders. Now, whether you or not are called to this, I suppose the greater question is, uh, do you care? Are you interested? See, whether you're called to stay here or whether you're called to go, all of us are called to be passionate about what's going on at the far ends of the earth. Because this is always what the gospel's been about, that it would go to all people, that there'd be access everywhere. Is this something that, that beats in your heart? The nations worshiping Jesus is the chief concern of God's heart. Is it yours? Now, John Piper, again, what a guy, um, has rightly concluded this, saying there are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to world missions. Zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. Are you a zealous goer? But more than that, if not, are you a zealous sender by fervently praying for the missionaries on the front lines, by reading updates, by giving financially, by, by giving encouragement, and just by a general excitement and eagerness to know what's going on at the frontier, let us know. Now today, I don't know where you are. Like I said, I'm new here. And I don't know what might strike you from this, but I do know this, that in the gospel of Jesus, we receive grace and an invitation also to make him known in La Junta and to the ends of the earth. Today, more than anything, won't you receive anew the grace of God? And maybe this is where you are. Maybe this idea that you are in need of grace first and foremost before you do anything, Christian, is what you need. Would you receive the grace of Jesus anew? And if you know that grace, praise the Lord, but won't you speak of him here? And won't you go? And if not, won't you send? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much um, for what you did for us, what you did on our behalf. Lord, you gave it all, Lord, that we might have grace, that we might be in relationship with you. Lord, there are so many billions around the world that do not have this message. Lord, use us, Lord, graciously to be a part of what you're doing here to make yourself known and also to the ends of the earth, Lord. Lord, we are so unworthy, Lord, but your grace has sent us out. Lord, I pray, Lord, that um, there might be people here that need to know your grace, to know more about Really, we can experience kindness because of what Jesus did. Lord, I pray for those people. If there's people here that are thinking, I never ever thought that I could ever do anything related to foreign missions, but is feeling the pulling on their heart. Lord, I pray you would speak to them. Lord Jesus, everything we do is because of your grace and for your grace that you might be praised here and among every nation at the ends of the earth. Amen.